The world is a pretty dark place at the moment, with the violence in Ukraine dominating the news. So today, on Lean Out, we're going to talk about a book on hope and on the triumph of humanity in the most grim conditions. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a former war correspondent for the New York Times. He's also a Presbyterian minister and a best-selling author. His latest book is called The Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. And it chronicles how he and 28 students in a maximum security prison went on an emotional journey writing a play. In a prison, you build emotional walls. You don't show grief, you don't show weakness because it's a very predatory environment. Because they were writing about their lives and because they were writing about moments in their lives that were emotionally charged, all of those barriers that people build in order to survive in prison broke down. And suddenly it was this magical space. In spite of the horrors of mass incarceration, these men were able to transcend their circumstances through art. Chris Hedges is here today to tell us this remarkable story. Chris, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this today. The book is such a powerful book. I've been a journalist 20 years. I did my first six years in hip hop interviewing rappers whose lives had been profoundly shaped by mass incarceration. So this book brought a lot back for me. I'd like to start in the early 80s. You write about been living in Roxbury in Boston, running this small church. You became disillusioned with the liberal church, with your liberal divinity school classmates. Can you take me back to that time and what you were experiencing, how that set you on a trajectory to become a war correspondent? So it was a very schizophrenic existence because I lived in Roxbury, which is probably the most depressed urban area in Boston, primarily African-American and Latino. And I commuted every day into Cambridge to Harvard Divinity School. And there you had people talking about empowering the oppressed, but of course they didn't know any oppressed. and they would do things like go at, this was when the Sandinista government had just taken power. So they would go to Nicaragua and pick coffee for a week and then spend the rest of the semester talking about it, but not spend the 20 minutes on the green line out to where people, especially in the projects, I lived across the street from the projects were being warehoused. And that really soured me on liberals who are very self-referential and I think so much of liberal posturing is about self-adulation. Yeah, I say Harvard Divinity School is where I learned to hate liberals. <laughs> <laughs> There's a key moment in the book. You have finished your master's in divinity. You have this final meeting with your ordination committee. Your father himself, a minister, he's out waiting outside the room. Tell me what happened that day and what your father said to you. So I decided, I had always written, I published my first piece in a major newspaper in the Christian Science Monitor when I was a senior in college, you know, editor of the school paper, all that kind of stuff. But I had a hard time reconciling that very strong social commitment. My father was a World War II vet, but had been very involved in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. And I grew up in a small farm town 
in upstate New York, where Martin Luther King was one of the most hated men in America. He was very vocal in the gay rights movement. My uncle, his youngest brother, was gay. And my father had a particular sensitivity to the pain of being a gay man in America in the 1950s and 1960s. Actually, the church really came down on him for that. And I decided, really, because of living in Roxbury, that I had a kind of rupture with the institutional church, which, of course, had left the inner city with white flight, and that I would go to El Salvador. I had taken a year off and studied Spanish in Cochabamba, Bolivia with the Marinol at the Marinol Language School, and then freelance, uh, written for the Washington Post, and ended up covering the Falkland War out of Buenos Aires for National Public Radio and CBC, by the way. I did a lot of work for CBC. Mm-hmm. So I used to do Sunday morning shows out of El Salvador. And I decided I would go to El Salvador where the death squads were killing hundreds of people a month and use my journalism to give a voice to them. And I went before my ordination committee. Uh, my father, as you said, was seated outside. He'd been a parish minister for 40 years. And they asked you what your call is. You're actually approved for ordination in the Presbyterian Church before you go to divinity school because they don't want you to waste your time. So it's a formality, but you have to present a call. So I'm going to be a chaplain. I'm going to go to the Newton Presbyterian Church, whatever it is. And I said, I'm going to go to El Salvador and be a freelance journalist and cover the war. And there was a long pause. And the head of the committee said, uh, we don't ordain journalists. And that was it. And I walked out and ran into my father and told him, I'm sure it was hard for him to have his son come that close to ordination. And then also dealing with the fact that I was going to El Salvador, a place where photographers and reporters have been killed and would be killed. And he said, you are ordained to write. It's really powerful. And there's a real strong sense of spiritual calling throughout this book. Could you talk a little bit about that calling that you feel and how that kind of tied into your writing, but also to the activism that you've done? I think that great preachers like great journalists are concerned with the truth, which is different from news. I spent many years working for the New York Times, and what we do for a living is manipulate facts. I can spin those facts in a variety of ways to make you have a variety of impressions. If my commitment is to the reader, then I will use those facts to try and convey truth. But that's not always good for your career. And I think good preachers are the same, especially these kind of prophetic figures, you know, Martin Luther King, or I would include Malcolm X, these kind of figures. It's about truth, which is often hard to hear. And my commitment was always to the truth. And so I think that there is a crossover. Also, coming out of kind of left-wing religious tradition, we were always told that we were to stand with those the theologian James Cone calls the crucified of the earth. And that when you truly stand with the oppressed, you will finally be treated like the oppressed. And I think also for me, great journalism is about amplifying and giving voice to those who, if you weren't there, wouldn't have a voice. And of course, I ended up doing that for 20 years, primarily out of war zones. So for me, there are convergences to the religious tradition in which I grew up and the journalism that I practiced. I mean, for instance, when I I had been the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times, uh, the war in Bosnia was raging. 
in Sarajevo, all of the European correspondents for the New York Times, it was very dangerous, of course, signed a letter saying that it was too dangerous for them to go in. I went to the executive editor of the paper and said, I would like to cover the war from Sarajevo. And he said, well, I guess the line starts and ends with you. So a lot of the jobs that I wanted, Gaza, I covered the first Gulf War, I covered the civil war in Yemen, Algeria, of course, five years in the war in El Salvador. A lot of the jobs that I wanted, no one else wanted. There wasn't much competition for them. Hmm. You know, moving now to going into the prison system, you've been teaching since I think about 2010. On the outside, you talk a little bit about this in the book, but I want to sort of dig into it. On the outside, you probably seem entirely different from your students. You're white, you're well-educated, you're middle-class, but you're also a former war reporter and you do have this intimate knowledge of violence and the kind of evil that you see in both war and in the prison system. How do you think that experience prepared you for the kind of suffering that you confronted in the prisons and in this book? I think it was key to building relationships. They come out of very violent cultures. Violence was an intimate part of my life for many years. It was industrial violence, wholesale violence. So I think there was that connection. They carry a lot of trauma. I carry trauma from my experience covering war. I wasn't intimidated by them. I think having been in war zones around people who carried out killing for a living, I was very comfortable in the setting. And yet I also had lived in other cultures. So I was well aware that there were a cultural divide that would never be bridged. So for instance, I spent a lot of time in Gaza. I'm an Arabic speaker and I worked very hard over the seven years I was in the Middle East to understand what it was like to be a Palestinian in the world's largest open air prison. But I also realized that given my privilege and privilege is a form of blindness, especially white male privilege and on top of that American imperial privilege. Uh, this is what King Lear gets correctly. And so, but if you honor that blindness, if you understand that there are always things that because of your privilege, you will not be able to grasp, then you can have real relationships. And so, I kind of swung the other way for a couple of reasons. I mean, I always showed up in a Brooks Brothers suit. I had taught at other schools, Princeton, Columbia, NYU. I actually taught at University of Toronto for a semester. And I dressed like that. And I expected the same kind of decorum and the same kind of work commitment. But also it was a way to kind of not pretend. I never pretended I was hip. Uh, okay, I'm not hip anyway. And I think that because of that kind of honesty, but I think you're right. Also, with my background, I was able to develop real relationships with men who came from a very, very different world from the one that most of us are familiar with. Mm -hmm. So you're teaching this class in Rahway in 2013. Walk us through how the idea of a play came about. I stumbled into it totally by accident. So I was teaching drama. August Wilson, great American playwright, uh, McCraney, wrote the great brother-sister plays, the trilogy, Baldwin, Panera. I taught a play by, I've drawn a blank on his name, by the gay Canadian playwright, because there's deep homophobia in the prison. 
And it was clear that they had no familiarity with drama. And so just on a whim, I said, well, I want you to begin to understand dramatic form, dramatic dialogue. So write scenes. It doesn't have to be dramatic, just scenes from your life before prison, in prison, doesn't matter. And what I didn't know is that one of my students, whose nickname, these guys are big, a lot of them, they spent a lot of time lifting weights. They call it the 400 Club, which means they all bench over 400 pounds. This guy benched over 500 pounds. He was huge. His nickname was Kabir, which in Arabic means big. But he was a devoted listener to the Pacifica station out of New York, WBAI, which I am on frequently. So he knew who I was. And he recruited the best writers in the prison. And these were very talented writers. I mean, some of them had published poetry and stuff. And so I took those scenes home and I had maybe five or six that were really remarkable. And this happened again, maybe two, three times. And I showed them to my wife, who is Canadian, and went to Juilliard and is a professional actor. And I just said, I think I'm going to help him write a play. I'm not a playwright. I don't know how to write plays or anything. But there was just so much talent in the room. I wasn't going to let it go. And then we shifted. And then all sorts of things began to happen that were not planned or it was completely unpremeditated. So in a prison, you build emotional walls. You don't show grief. You don't show weakness because it's a very predatory environment. And you can live in a cell with somebody for years and they know almost nothing about you. In fact, in prison, they don't even use their legal name. They all use nicknames. Mm. And because they were writing about their lives and because they were writing about moments in their lives that were emotionally charged, loss, grief, pain, all this kind of stuff, and because they were reading it, all of those barriers that people build in order to survive in prison broke down. And suddenly it was this magical space, sacred space is not overdramatic. And it became immensely therapeutic because people were actually able to speak the pain that until then was never expressed and never heard. And I mean, you know, from the book, I mean, some of these stories were really powerful. I mean, for instance, we were, when I was helping them, I kind of edited and formed stuff. I mean, everything had to be approved by them as we wrote the play, which was called Cage. It was eventually published and performed at the theater in Trenton, New Jersey, sold out every night. But one day I said, okay, I want you to write a scene with your mother because I was trying to build a scene with a mother. And at the end of the class, one of the students came up and said, well, what if we're a product of rape? And I said, well, Timmy, that's what you have to write. So, and everything is autobiographical. I mean, there were 28 students, but everything in that play happened to someone in that classroom, including one student who was first night he's incarcerated and the guard comes and tells him that that was the cell his father used to be in. And Timmy writes, he's in a car in Patterson, New Jersey with his half-brother, and the car is stopped by the police and searched, and there's a weapon in the car. It's his half-brother's weapon. Now, if nobody claims the weapon, then everybody gets a weapons charge, and Timmy said it's mine, even though it wasn't. And he described the phone call to his mother from the county jail, and he said, it doesn't matter, Ma, I was never supposed to be here anyway, and you have the son you love. That's why he went to prison. Powerful, powerful story. I hope, I mean, I wrote the book because 
these are people I not only care deeply about, but that in many ways I admire. Very few of us could have gone through what they went through and become who they have become. And that really was the goal of the book, as well as to expose the cruelty of mass incarceration. My students had turned their cells into libraries. They were prison scholars, and they'd never had the opportunities that I had for an education. And that made them value it so much more. They were so hungry to learn, and they worked so hard. And some of them, it was a maximum security prison, so I certainly had students in the class who had committed murder, but they weren't murderers. They weren't killers. I've been around killers. And these are, you know, essentially, especially with the creation of a kind of criminal caste system, these are people who have been rendered, you know, one-dimensional. And the book was really an attempt to show readers who they are and what they've gone through and who they became. I want to talk for a moment about the day that they performed the play in the prison. You brought the great Cornell West and the great James Cone into the prison to see this play performed live. Tell me a little bit about what that day was like on an emotional level for everyone who was there. Well, as soon as it takes four to six weeks to get security clearances to get a visitor into the prison. So my class knew that Cornell and James were coming for some time. And it was really moving. I mean, for them, it might as well have been a Broadway opening. I mean, they were just so excited. And they would practice the reading of the play, uh, not only in the class, but in the yard, in the mess hall. I mean, they worked so hard. They wanted to really be worthy of the visit. And the day that I brought them in, Cornell and James, were in the lobby, and suddenly the warden or the administrator appears with several senior prison corrections officers and said, you're not going to your classroom. We're taking you to the chapel. It's totally unannounced. I had no idea. So off we go to the chapel. And now there's like maybe a dozen corrections officers. And most of them are white shirts, which means they're officers. And in my, my class comes in, and they immediately know what's up. And there were parts of the play that the reason we didn't perform it as a play in the prison is because there are parts in it that the prison authorities would not like. And the retribution, of course, would be carried out against my students. But that meant that those parts could also not be read. So I had 28 guys, and they all kind of huddled in a circle to decide what parts of the play they would read and what parts they wouldn't. And I remember desperately wanting to listen. But there was a, at that point, I kind of felt that my job was done, that it was their play. And I purposely walked to the back of the hall so I couldn't hear. And then they read the passages. I mean, they know. <laughs> so they couldn't read the whole play, but they read the passages that would be palatable. I don't think the corrections officer liked any of it, but would be palatable to the prison authorities. Mm. And how are your students doing today? As I know you keep in touch with a lot of them. Yeah, it's interesting because that whole experience created a bond that was unique, which they talk about, because, of course, suddenly there was an intimacy within that group that was unique to the prison. And I've met a lot of them at the gate when they get out. Some of them are doing well and some of them are not. I mean, Kabir, for instance, two years later is homeless in Newark. 
and struggling. He went in at 18. I mean, this was another, it's in the book, but you know, he's one of those classic cases of a guy who should have never gone to prison. He was just turned 18 and in a car with two older guys in their 20s. Those guys go into a store to rob it. He's listening to a 50 cent song in the car. The owner reaches for a gun. They have a gun. They shoot the owner. They run out. So it's murder and everybody gets charged. So he spends 16 years in jail. But if you come out with no support system, which he has none, and you go in that young, in many ways, you come out that young. Mm -hmm. So some of them are really struggling. And then the trauma itself, you spend 30 years in that environment. It's hard to adjust to the outside. I mean, now, because I've been teaching for so long, a lot of my energy goes into trying to hold them up and I don't have the resources to do it. I mean, a lot of it is just going to Newark and taking Kabir out for a coffee. But yeah, there was a unique kind of bond that was created that to this day, I mean, I had lunch yesterday with Boris Franklin in the book. He was my first student to get out at the gate. And this is a classic example. I mean, these people are serious intellectuals. They are what Gramsci would call organic intellectuals. And if you're making $28 a month, which is what you make in the prison, to buy a book is a huge expenditure. And when you leave the prison, you lose everything you have. You can't take anything out. So Boris, who was in 11 years, again, somebody who should have never been in prison, he doesn't have any of his books. And the first words he says to me after 11 years of being incarcerated is, I have to rebuild my library. (laughs) Wow. Now he's doing great. He's a community organizer. He finished Rutgers University. I always find it moving because I remember him in prison, you know, and just to see him thriving. I, I just I never get over. It. It's always so emotional for me. And that really, really came through in the book. I certainly felt that reading it. We've talked about the humanity of this experience. I want to talk just briefly about the evil because I don't know how to process that. I mean, How do we think about this evil of mass incarceration? You know, you say in the book, it makes you feel somewhat fatalistic. How do we process the cruelty of the solitary confinement, the compelled labor, the humiliation, the breaking of familial bonds that you speak about? How do you go about processing that? Well, I found the play dealt with all of that. And it was interesting. When we put the play on, the director, Jarrell Henderson, who was a director in Chicago, he directed it. And I remember him, he articulated it, which I hadn't before. He said, really, this is a play about radical love. It's about families and individuals who know that the monolith, the system they face is so evil and so cruel and so harsh, they may not survive and many around them will not survive. And yet they reach out anyway. And the core of the play is about the prison code, the code of the street, but also the code of the prison. First half of the play takes place outside prison, second half inside. And it's actually based, the ending of the play is based on, everything is based on an actual experience. But this ending of the play was based on an experience that Boris had, and he was a very gifted writer, and he wrote it as well. And when we mounted the play in Trenton, It was all equity actors except for him. And I thought he was the most powerful character on the stage because he was able to reach into that reality in a way that most of the actors couldn't. So the end of the play is a guy gets into prison who has killed the brother of one of the other prisoners. And the prison code says that he has to take him out. He has to shank him. Shanks are homemade prison knives. 
And this was an actual occurrence. And so Boris meets him outside the mess hall. The two most dangerous places in a prison are mess halls and the yard. And he demands the shank because everybody knows he's going in there to kill this guy. And when I saw it on the stage, Boris kept pushing him. He was very physical. And after the play, I said, well, that was interesting because I didn't see that in the writing. Why were you so physical? And he said, because if he didn't give me the shank, I would have to start a fight. So we'd both go to lockdown. So he couldn't go in there. Mm. And that's what the play is about. It's about people who overcome the trauma that they have endured and the alienation. And, you know, there is within, you know, many of these people feelings of shame, feelings of guilt and about reaching out to the other as a way of healing. And I think that kind of exemplifies at that moment. And that's really where the play comes to. And it was interesting. I mean, so many levels, there was a huge debate in the class about whether the guy should be shanked or shouldn't be shanked because the prison code, the macho code says that he should. And they all, you know, as, as the discussion went on, they all had to admit that the prison code was honored more in the breach than the observance. You know, that that kind of macho prison culture was often fictitious. And that in fact, when you're supposed to confront somebody in the words of one of the students, they become a phantom and you're a phantom. You just pretend they don't exist. The other thing, interesting thing is that there's one corrections officer in the play and the entire class, almost all of whom are black, insisted that he not be white. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. They said making him white is just making it easy. That's not how the system works. And they had such a profound understanding of, you know, the carceral state and how there were no shortage of black people who would willingly administer it. That, I found that was really interesting. They were at, the entire class was unanimous. Do not make him white. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, a liberal would make him white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. And that, that that's so funny. And I did want to return actually now to liberals and to this moment that we are in on the left. I'm of the left. I'm very concerned about it. It's sort of feels like a retreat into orthodoxies. And yet there's these massive issues like mass incarceration that require real attention. You talk at the end about poverty and the urgency of poverty. Can we just spend a moment on that and how you see economics and class playing into all this? Well, those are the issues for me. And it's the issues for them. The kind of retreat on the part of the Twitter liberal into you know, identity politics and multiculturalism, and political correctness, this is boutique activism and kind of mystifies them. It is about class and it is, it's about race too. It's about class, race, and the discarding of whole sections of our population with neoliberalism and deindustrialization. So these people come out of deindustrialized urban centers where they've been cast aside as human refuse surplus labor, Marx would call them. And this is what I quote George Bernard Shaw from Major Barber at the end. You know, poverty is the greatest crime because you're forced in order to survive into the illegal economy often to eat. And these are the real issues that have deformed our society, in particular American society, because when you fall in America, you don't have Canadian health insurance. You don't have anything. You fall hard. I mean, life expectancy in the United States is declining. 
mortality rates for infant births is accelerating. I mean, it's grim, grim. And that's the world they come out of. So yes, it's a, I mean, I always say the discussions that I have in a classroom in prison begin at a much higher level than they do at Princeton, because these people understand the corruption of the judicial system. They understand that the prison system, well, we, America runs the largest prison system in the world, 25% of the world's prisoners, although we're less than 5% of the world's population, militarized police. They understand that these are forms of social control. They get white supremacy. They get, if you're at Princeton, they're all in training to be part of the 1%. And they also come out of privilege, which, as I said earlier, is a form of blindness. So we actually begin at a much higher level than you could in a classroom of an elite university. Yeah, these are the, I mean, so I have students, if they, this is a wonderful program, they can get their BA degree from Rutgers in the prison. And if they have a 3.1 average, they can matriculate if they're released from prison to Rutgers. So my students who get out, they're actually now helping to organize the food service workers, and I think maintenance workers, but the staff at Rutgers But what's fascinating, they're almost all black. What's fascinating is they're working with people who support Trump, that it is about economic justice, that it is about class for them. And I think that the, and I'm obviously sympathetic to, you know, respecting others' identity and all this kind of stuff. But I think when you divorce it from the fundamental issues of of economics or of class, economic justice, then you spin off into this kind of weird Maoism that just kind of gripped, you know, many on the left. Mm, Yeah, indeed. It's a very strange time. Just to close, you just mentioned the program at Rutgers. At At the end of the book, you attend a graduation ceremony and you give a talk. And in that talk, you meditate on integrity and what you have learned about integrity from these men that you've worked with. Can you share a little bit about that now, just to close? Well, that integrity is not a brand. Integrity is not bequeathed by elite institution. Integrity is not a product of race or class or nationality or religion. Integrity is earned. And that they earned that integrity. They earned it in the projects they grew up in. They earned it in the shackles that they wore. They earned it in the cells, cramped cells where they studied to earn their college degree. And that's what I wanted them to know, how much I admire them. And I do. And how much of an honor it has been for me to be included in their lives. These are people who are very defensive with good reason, especially if you're white. And I open the talk, you know, this is the final talk to them when they graduate. You know, my fellow college students, you know, men and women, there were women, I've also taught in the women's prison, men and women of integrity. And that's what they are. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for this book. It is such a powerful book. I hope everyone reads it. And thank you for your work, Chris. Thank you. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.